As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. You're listening to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast and a warm welcome to you as we break down the World Cup semi-finals and look ahead to its decider on Sunday. France against Argentina, both looking to win their third World Cup. I'm Ali Maxwell. Uh, with me today, Liam Tharm rotates in. Many months of, of preview research, Liam, and one pretty intense month of super quick tactical analysis. Uh, how are you getting on? Yeah, no, it's been been great fun. Uh, good to be back on. I've enjoyed listening to the pod uh, in sort of the few weeks since I've I've last been here, and uh, I think it's been a really good tournament so far. And excited now for what looks like a really good final. You remembering to eat, stay hydrated. Occasionally, yeah. <laughs> Hi, Michael Cox. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, yeah, like Liam says, I've I've really enjoyed this tournament. I was a bit skeptical about how it would play out with everything so condensed and lack of preparation time. But I think, considering those two things, I think the quality of football has been pretty much as good as we could have hoped for. Mm. We mentioned a few days ago that the two semi-finals, but uh, both had a clear favourite, certainly in the eyes of the bookmakers, uh, and it it went the way of the favourites. Both Argentina and France uh, making the final, beating Croatia three nil in Argentina's case, and Morocco two nil in the case of France. Um, as a pair of semi-finals Michael how do you think these will will rank in the pantheon of World Cup semi-finals I thought Argentina Croatia was terrible to be honest I must admit I really didn't enjoy that game it was like half an hour of waiting for something to happen and then five minutes later it was game over because Argentina had scored two goals um I think the thing that saved it really was the third goal and I think people really remember that messy assist for a long time but I must admit I just when Croatia went 2-0 down I just had no expectation they could get themselves back into the game I know they do have a habit of going behind and coming back but I just don't think they have any real attacking threat I think they've got close to the best midfield in this tournament I'm not sure their attack is in the top 20 to be honest I mean Perisic is a good player but I'm not sure they have much else the game last night I really enjoyed I think like a lot of people I was almost cheering on Morocco at times because they've they've been such a good story and because they came out and they played, you know, they had to because they went 1-0 down early. But, you know, we've spoken about them being well-organised defensively and good on the counter-attack. But I thought some of their build-up play and the rotations down the flanks were really good. You have to say they didn't really create any chances aside from that 
one uh, with a substitute striker whose name I've forgotten, sorry, uh, didn't pull the trigger when he probably should have done. And that has been, you know, they haven't had that much threat um, after long periods of build-up play in this tournament. But I thought it was a great story, Morocco. And uh, yeah, that, that semi-final I really enjoyed. Liam, it's often the case that I'll say this, but I would have loved to have seen how that game would have played out had it stayed at nil-nil a little longer. You wrote in the preview that a fast start for France would be pretty important and, well, they got it. They did, yeah. The fastest World Cup semi-final goal since 1958, I believe. Um, it was interesting because I, and I thought France might do this. They were the first team to sort of not play how Morocco wanted. Uh, first 15 minutes, uh, France had just 32% possession. That was as per the, the FIFA statistics. Obviously, lots of teams. We've seen it with Spain, seen it with Portugal, having lots of the ball. Um, and France sort of went, there you go. And ironically, the, the goal comes about from you know a, a good passage of play, um, a good sort of movement by Griezmann. Um, so not exactly you know a transition, forcing an error. But um, I, I guess that much is playing psychologically and as we'll sort of touch on and come on to um, the sort of different shape that Morocco were playing. Um, I, I think it was a sensible approach. It's an interesting approach, isn't it, Michael? It's it's I wouldn't go as far as to say counterintuitive to sort of seed the ball when you are the the team that's expected to win the match, expected therefore to dominate the game to an extent. But it's it's abnormal, I would say, uh, and uh, therefore quite a brave approach. Dare I say it from Didier Deschamps? Because if it hadn't gone well, I imagine French football fans would have been pretty confused about what might have been seen as quite a passive approach, but obviously one that worked. Yeah, I guess so. I think they've tended to be more passive than you'd expect over the last few years, considering the, the quality of players at their disposal. Obviously, they've got two really good wide players who are very good on the break. Um, so yeah, it was, it was fairly typical for Deschamps France. I think they're, they're very much happy to play on the counter. Interesting that the you could maybe categorise England in a similar way uh, and Southgate's Priority being control, not necessarily of possession, but of the game itself and trying to keep it um, low margin. There are some national team managers, Luis Enrique Spain, for example, that still go completely the opposite way. And I think it's created quite a nice um, a breadth of, of team in within the elite at this World Cup. Yeah, I agree. And it's interesting you mentioned Southgate because, I mean, the big criticism of Southgate coming into this tournament was that he was a bit too defensive. You know, phrases involving the handbrake were, were particularly popular. Needed to take the handbrake off. But you look at the semi-finalists of this tournament. Are France attack-minded? I, I don't think so. Croatia attack-minded? I think they dominate possession. I don't think they have much attacking threat. Argentina certainly not attack-minded. I think very reactive and reliant on one or two individuals. And Morocco, although we did see them come out and play yesterday, for much of the tournament they've been very defensive. So... This idea that England had to be more attacking to, to really make progress in this tournament, I just don't think stands up. I don't think tournaments are really won in that way. There won't be much more England chat, but it, one of the big themes of the quarterfinal England-France was the battle down France's left, England's right, um, the, the Mbappe question, uh, as it was kind of called in the preview. How did Morocco approach the Mbappe question and, and how did they fare? Well, the 5 4 one isn't something we'd seen from Morocco so far this tournament. They've been quite wedded to that 4-3-3 or the 4-1-4-1 the with, with Amrabat really sort of the, the deeper midfielder and then sort of two two blocks of four um, either side of him. Um, so the, the back five is maybe a, a slight tweak. Um, I think 
it potentially made sense in definitely trying to avoid losing the game. Um, it's not the sort of uh, shape you'd set up to go into a game and then go one or down early on. You're, just, you're trying to really avoid that, if anything. Um, and I guess it tried to add some more cover on the right-hand side. We'd seen how England had played with what looked like a back four on paper and then built up with a back three and sort of kept Carl Walker close to Kylian Mbappe. Um, obviously, Hakimi against Mbappe was then billed as sort of another repeat, um, really exciting duel. And I think we saw the success that Mbappe got more in the game as the game got stretched. He's been a really good second half player. He had a couple of really good runs sort of down that side. Um, but then Morocco did manage to get in behind his side as well in the second half. They had some really good combinations. Uh, Unahi kept pulling wide. Uh, Sofiane Bufal, who has been a really good um, you know, wide winger, even though he's a right footer playing off the left and was drifting across. And those great combinations with Hakimi, with Ziyech getting in behind um, on another day, maybe they produced a chance from that right-hand side. Michael, the Moroccan manager, Walid Regwagui, has been one of the sort of breakout names of the tournament, uh, the way that he's handled himself and the way that his team has played and the way that he has set them up. But will he be looking back at switching two or three at the back, adding a centre-back, losing a body in midfield as being, in hindsight, a bit of an issue with how that game started? I think he might. And I think it's worth us, worth me saying that he knew more about the fitness of the defenders than than I did. Clearly, one of them only lasted 45 minutes, one of them lasted 20 minutes, and one of them got replaced before the game even kicked <laughs> off. So I don't think it's unfair to say that he probably just thought, look, mobility is an issue here. We're going to load up on an extra defender against the pace of France's attack. And on paper, I don't think it was necessarily a bad move. But I must say, when you look at the first 20 minutes, I thought in terms of the build-up play, they, they often end up with kind of two players standing on top of each other. Um, a couple of times they tried to press and didn't really seem to know how. Um, and particularly, I think particularly the goal they conceded, because I think a really notable thing of how they've played previously in this tournament would be that the two number eights were very aggressive at shutting down high up when the ball was played. If, if an opposition centre-back would come forward, it'd be one of the number eights coming out. And uh, that obviously didn't happen for the first goal. Varane was able to advance and play the ball into... Griezmann and okay there's a mistake in the centre of defence and the goal actually gets finished probably 10-15 seconds after that but it's that specific thing that Morocco have been really good at I think and it's that specific thing that went wrong for them in this situation and I thought and obviously the game state plays into it but I thought when they changed back to the 4-3-3 they played really good football um, I wouldn't necessarily criticise him but I wish he hadn't done it <laughs> as a neutral do you know what I mean like I think he probably you know, he thought about it for longer than any of us and he decided that was the best approach. But, uh, you know, to, repay, to repeat what you said, Ali, I wish it had stayed nil-nil for, for longer, basically. Liam, we'll never know whether El Yamik would have chosen to, to try and jump that pass into Griezmann in the build-up to the first goal. Of course, Griezmann giving in the slip and uh, and, and the play developing and, and finishing finished off by Teo Hernandez. Um, even so... Griezmann's quality and his quality of movement and his decision making and that savviness uh, that we've spoken about a few times during the tournament, that intelligence to exploit what might be a, a, an extra focus on Mbappe that defences has, and Griezmann has, has absolutely thrived. 
Absolutely, and it's it's not been the key part of his role so far this tournament. I think in terms of um, being so penetrative with his runs, he's been a really good creative force. I had a look this morning, he's he's made the most chances of any player, he's made the most big chances of any player. Um, I know he's taken set pieces as well, which has played into that, but I think just the, the completeness and the all-round game that he's now showing is a really valuable tool. Um, I imagine, especially in international football and in this tournament, where obviously Michael and we've all spoken about the lack of preparation time, and he's played, I think, over 70 games consecutively now for France. Um, that reliability that you get from him that guarantee uh, must be a massive sort of comfort for Deschamps knowing okay I've got injuries elsewhere but this is really sort of a, a Swiss army knife of a forward that I can sort of put where I want and he's going to be really good regardless Yeah, and, and not just you know contributing in an attacking sense in that quite nice free-ish role where you know the onus is on him to find the space and exploit it uh, but also very much mucking in when France don't have the ball and as discussed they don't have the ball quite a lot Griezmann certainly pulling his weight on that front Oh yeah, I think so. Um, Deschamps has spoken about how important you know defending is to sort of win um, tournaments and to to win titles like this. I know they have only kept one clean sheet, but they've not conceded more than once uh, in any game so far. So they've not been completely watertight, but they've also not had um, those sorts of moments of maybe collapsing like we've seen with other teams and um, giving away multiple goals. So um, I think that's particularly exciting going into this game um, and. With them being sort of not a ridiculously high possession side, and we'll touch on the final more later, I imagine, but um, Argentina in a similar sort of bracket, there's there's a lot of ways this game could go now, I think. Mm. Michael, it's often said that it's easy to play when you're 1-0 down. It's easy to, to look good and, and look like you're dominating the ball and territory when you're 1-0 down. But Morocco did play some really quite exciting stuff in the second half, front foot stuff. Um, talk me through the changes that Regragui made and what they did so well. Well, I think the main change, like I say, was just going back to the 4-3-3 and they were just doing things I haven't really seen them do this tournament. I mean, the fullbacks, Masrawin and Hakimi were coming inside a lot. Um, Ziyech on the right was staying very wide. I think that confused France in that space behind Mbappe. Buffal was playing an interesting role at times. He was very wide. At times, he, his second half, he was playing more like a number 10. Unahi, I think, really was the, the biggest beneficiary of going back to the 4-3-3. I know Amrabat's got a lot of praise. I think Unahi's actually been their best player this tournament. I think he's been absolutely fantastic. And someone who I, I really was not aware of before this tournament, aside from seeing his name mentioned in a couple of previews, I'd never seen him play. And I think the thing that, that saved France the game was bringing on Tiram for Giroud and just getting him to to play a more solid role on the left. They put Mbappe up front and suddenly they weren't so vulnerable down that flank because um, Teo Hernandez has, has not really covered himself in glory defensively in the last couple of games, even though I think going forward he's, he's maybe been maybe the best fullback in this tournament. Um, so yeah, it was just going back to plan A, I think, that, that helped Morocco um, in terms of system, but also just yeah showing far more to their game than we've seen from them previously. They are clearly a very good footballing side. A savvy switch from Deschamps to help take the game away from them, get that second goal as well at a very, very good time where it could have, have been quite awkward for the last 15, 20 minutes. But that's what he, he does. That's what he's done pretty consistently as France manager. Of course, had a huge impact as a player uh, in France's 1998 win, uh, as a manager in their 2018 win and, and leads them into another final here as well. Michael, you, you see a lot on social media in general, but but more specifically, last night I saw a few people bemoaning the fact that France had, in in their opinion, been quite poor at times in the game last night against Morocco, at times in the game against England, looked vulnerable at times, uh, just maybe not playing as well as some people expect 
a finalist to play or even a, a team of, of this paper talent, if you will. Um, have France been under par for a finalist or is that just a, a function of scoring in the fifth minute of a World Cup semi-final, scoring early as well against England? I just think it happens every World Cup. I mean, look at France the last time out in the group stage. They weren't that fun. Germany at times, particularly against Algeria in 2014, were really poor. Spain, 2010, their first game against Switzerland, they were wretched, really. Italy in the group stage weren't impressive in 2006. You've probably got to go back to 2002 Brazil, so 20 years ago, to find a, a finalist or eventual winner that really played well throughout the competition. Um, I think that's just, that is tournament football. And I think people sometimes look back on past winners with kind of rose-tinted specs, whereas actually along the way we had a lot of doubts about them. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Messi. Guardiola's got back at him. Will he be able to stay with him? No. Messi gets through, and Argentina have three. Alvarez has got his second, made by the master. We will talk about some of the questions that Deschamps will have in the next few days uh, when talking about the final soon. They're playing against Argentina, who beat Croatia 3-0. Uh, not a classic in Michael's eyes. Um, in terms of how the two teams set up, well, Croatia very much as expected, uh, and Liam, we expected a Scaloni switch because he's been a very agile tactician in this tournament so far. It's been great to follow. Maybe the specifics weren't necessarily what we had predicted. He did take uh, Lissandro Martinez out of the side, but he didn't replace him with Papu Gomez or a, or a forward player, rather an extra midfielder. Yeah, they ended up with sort of like a, a boxing midfield, which I think is quite clear to see when you sort of break down the first goal. I know it's an error from, from Modric and letting the pass run through, but you know having those two players deeper um, in, in that sort of double pivot and then having the sort of two number 10s, and it really frees up uh, Alvarez and Messi in particular, both are sort of playing on the last on the defence. We all know about um, Julian Alvarez's game being sort of running in behind and, you know, being so athletic and, and dynamic and um, I think it really just was probably more of a um, maybe a defensive tactic actually in the sense of having the extra body to stop Croatia controlling it in midfield was you know everyone's spoken about before they've got like the best midfield three at the tournament um, so I'm not sure it was necessarily designed to um, dominate it in possession um, but ended up obviously having those um, benefits and uh, I just think they were two sort of 
strange goals to see. You don't often see two goals straight through the middle like that, um, especially against sort of a team that's so good at being compact and so dominant in, in the central spaces. Mm. Michael, there's there's more to a match than basic formations and shape, but did you feel that that extra midfield body made a difference for, for Argentina coping with Croatia's midfield? Yeah, I think it did. I can't remember whether I said it on this podcast, but I did expect Scaloni to do that. You know, I thought he'd just look at Croatia's midfield and think, yeah, that's a threat. Let's just try and block up the game, really. And I think, really, the effect was just to make the game nothing really. Like I said, nothing happened in the first half hour. I thought Croatia actually still played some good stuff through midfield, but didn't really penetrate Argentina's defence at all. And they kind of just reduced it to a bit of a, a bit of a scrap, really. And just a game of moments. And if it comes down to moments, I think Argentina got the players to to win. Whereas Croatia, I think if you know they were going to have to win on flow and kind of dominating the game. So I, I think it did work. It, it achieved pretty much what his objective was, I expect. I feel like it helped to mitigate Messi's out of possession. Uh, well, his his kind of absence of of any substance out of possession, uh, which is you know absolutely his prerogative at this stage of his career. But I mean, he could barely move at times, particularly in the first half, where he appeared to have a slight injury. I, I guess Liam, it's a pretty simple one for Scaloni. Like, even if Messi's not going to do anything out of possession, and therefore the Croatia centre backs might hold the ball um, if we've blocked off obvious passing lanes into their midfield or if it demands Modric or Kovacic or Brozovic to drop right back into the defensive line we're absolutely fine with that they're well well away from our goal uh, and not in dangerous areas no I think that comes back to the point about you know having a not defensive first team in the sense of being negative but in tournament football working on not losing before you then start um sort of winning games and, and that to me just seems a more sort of sensible way to um, approach it. He's obviously taken time throughout the tournament to sort of construct the midfield, that that balance in the three of Fernandez, De Paul and McAllister took a few games to sort of get pieced together. He's done the same thing with um, the fullbacks, I think, on both sides and sort of maybe not constructing it um, as it goes through the tournament, but sort of readjusting and, and making tweaks. Obviously, they came in off the back of a really good unbeaten run, which I think if you now sort of extend this across the tournament, they still have only lost something like one game in about 40, which is still a really, really good record. Obviously, I know the, um, the unbeaten one's gone, but it's a team that are really good at not losing games of football. They showed that in the Copa America um, you know, last summer and were a better team at game managing than what they've shown at times this tournament. Um, but I think they're a really good team um, sort of across the board in terms of being balanced. Uh, Michael, we were, we were rubbing our eyes in the, in the build-up to the first goal. A ball over the top, an attacker running in behind, a defensive lapse. Uh, it's not something we've seen very much in Qatar. Yeah, I do quite like just a ball over the top. I know it's not as easy to play as it is on paper because you do need to time the run. You do need, you know, you can't just hoof the ball over the top and hope for the best. But with so many teams kind of playing quite high up but really compact between defence and midfield this tournament, I do think there's been room for a few more balls like that. Um, I mean, Belgium didn't do much well in this tournament, but one thing they did do well was the goal for Batshuayi on the opening day against Canada, which was a fairly simple pass from Toby Alderweireld. Um, so, yeah, it was good to see. And um, I think Alvarez is just a very, he's very willing, isn't he? He's very willing in an attacking sense going forward. And he's also willing to get back and do the defensive work that Messi can't really do. So, yeah, just that energy and that directness paid off really well for Argentina. And the second goal, I must say, I don't like the goal. I just don't like watching the goal because he loses control of the ball about three times. But again, just the determination to to go through the defence, just to run through the defence. 
I, I just really like that. I think that's one thing we haven't seen much at this tournament, not because players don't want to do it, just because teams are so well organised and protect the defence so well. But in that situation from a counter-attack, when the defence was exposed, it was great to see someone just, just going for it, almost like a... It was almost like a rugby union try or something mm. rather than a goal in football. He just bundled his way through. Yeah, good luck to him. <laughs> good luck to him. I wonder if we'll see uh, a similar tactic in the final because it, it strikes me that if broadly Argentina's plan A in attack is to get the ball into Messi's feet, you can understand that that particularly the back line will be on high alert for that and, and maybe on their toes sort of looking and... And, and edging forward in order to try and get tight to him if need be. And even though this is a tiny, tiny detail, if you're, if you're on, the, on the front foot, maybe that ball in behind, if it's well-timed and the run is well-timed, you just get that split second of, of, uh, of a head start over the defence. Uh, it certainly helps if Lovren and, and Guardiola, as they did, just completely muck up a, a, an offside trap, a defensive line there. Uh, Michael, it feels like no one's going to wax lyrical about Argentina's team style I think we will all be waxing lyrical for the rest of our lives about Lionel Messi um, but but what they have in comparison to let's say Brazil who we did wax lyrical about in terms of attacking style they've been absolutely sustainable for, for short term knockout international football so far yeah to a certain extent I mean I think um, playing more defensive and more cautious tends to be more viable in an international tournament than in league competition because it's just about not losing games in the knockout stage I must say, I think, you know, you look at the way they played against Netherlands. I think they went too defensive and too aggressive. And from a position of superiority, they really let the Netherlands back into it. And obviously they won on penalties, having lost a 2-0 lead. Brazil lost on penalties, having lost a 1-0 lead. in Quite unfortunate circumstances with a deflected goal. So, yeah, I suppose it's been more sustainable in terms of results. Um, But I always think with penalty shootouts, you know, it's not luck, but it's not really necessarily reliant on how you played tactically. Mm. So, um, yeah, they've got to the final. I, I don't think they're a great side, but I think Scaloni has basically got the best out of this fairly limited starting eleven. I think. Mm. Another thing to credit Scaloni for, Liam, is his open-mindedness on, on personnel. You know, in the sense that Enzo Fernandez had not been a, a big starter for them in their long unbeaten run in their Copa America success, even even in, in qualifying. And Julian Alvarez, of course, was not established before the tournament. In fact, didn't start a game for Argentina until the third group game. Yeah, and then you've still got Paulo Dybala sat on the bench. So it's, um, I think there'd probably be more question marks over if they got eliminated with some of his decisions. It, I think it can feel a bit outcome biased at times of, you know, really good switches if it comes off. And then if it doesn't, it's what on earth are you doing? Um, but I think he'd used something like nine different goalkeepers in his first 50 games in charge before he sort of got Martinez into that spot regularly. So he's, you know, clearly not afraid. I, I think he's the youngest um, head coach at the tournament. So definitely not afraid of um, trying out different players in, in different shapes in different ways. Um, I mean, obviously doesn't seem too wedded to one specific way of playing um, or, you know, a specific shape um, and is happy to sort of tweak and, and move things around. So I guess that has its benefits in terms of adapting to opponents. And then, uh, as Michael says, that way you can sort of mitigate a lot of their quality. Maybe you're not always going to exploit them too much and dominate them, but um, definitely yeah, can control teams a little bit better than some. Uh, and a last word on Croatia. Uh, knocked out in the semi-final. They go into the third place playoff with Morocco. Uh, Michael... Mostly, 
I felt a sense that Croatia were kind of in control of themselves in the knockout games up until this point. Um, the way that they reacted to going one nil down against Argentina was was surprising because of of how yeah how how well I think they've managed being behind in previous games. Uh, it was it was kind of un- uncharacteristic, but we we bid them farewell. Yeah, I mean they've always been able to dominate possession, and that's going back to when they were basically first a country in the in the mid late nineteen nineties. They always had brilliant playmakers. So they're not one of these kind of counter-attacking sides who when they go 1-0 behind, you're like, well, they're going to have to show another side to their game. If they go behind, they just play the way they were going to from the outset. And I think that does help them. Um, And yeah, to get to the semi-finals two years or two World Cups running, they've got a bit lucky along the way, I think it's fair to say. But it's a remarkable achievement, really, for a country of that population. So yeah, you're you're never sad to see Croatia doing well. I've enjoyed watching their midfield three as well. I know it's really not groundbreaking news to anyone, but I think they're just they're so exciting and so well balanced. Um, seeing Luka Modric out there still spraying these outside of the foot passes, um, I think he was he was topping sort of in every single game, including the one against Argentina in terms of passes, getting into the final third in that sort of quarterback role, um, and then seeing like Mateo Kovacic just start deciding to sort of motor through teams and get the ball and just dribble. And you go, there's there's no room for you to dribble there, but um, he, he finds sort of good space. And Liam Twomey did did a great piece on this, sort of breaking that down and. Um, I think sort of throwing it forward to, to the future um, Lovro Meyer I think is a really exciting central midfielder now that might have a role to play coming into that side um, he did come in and score in the group stages uh, he actually looks a bit like Modric as well has also got that sort of long blonde hair uh, but he's left footed a really good number 8 um, playing football um, in France so he's he's very good um, and just another one of those good sort of central midfielders um, for Croatia so their, their product line keeps going OK well we're not going to th- preview the third place playoff we will preview the world cup final uh, on sunday afternoon argentina france uh, argentina in their sixth world cup final they've won two lost three uh, at this stage france in their fourth uh, they've also won two uh, and lost one so whoever wins will win their third uh, world cup michael what in your eyes are the are the key tactical questions here well, I think obviously there's two pretty big players, uh, one from either side, who I think are going to dominate the the conversation. And I think the interesting thing is they're both given a bit of a free roll from defensive responsibilities and others have to try and cover for them. So for Messi, he you know, basically switches off and it's Alvarez going back and dropping into the midfield and becoming more of a number 10. And Mbappe, to a certain extent, the winger on the opposite side plays a deeper role. Um but not to, not to the extent of four years ago. I mean, four years ago was Matuidi, who really was a central midfielder out there, whereas now it's Dembele. So I do think France still just look a little bit weak in that zone behind Mbappe. And we've seen England try to exploit that and I think do quite well at it. Morocco made inroads down that flank yesterday. Um, so I do think it's a bit of a, a tactical issue for France. I think Argentina's shape kind of makes more sense. They do just have one player literally filling in for Messi. But I do think there's a hole in France's defensive block Mm. and I'm interested to see how Argentina try and exploit it. Yeah, it doesn't feel like their their setup in the last few games necessarily lends itself specifically to exploiting down that side. Of course, Messi has that right-sided bias and is the best player of all time. But in terms of of the other options, the the right-back 
as seen by Kyle Walker, has to be so careful not to be baited into running beyond Mbappe and, and then getting into trouble in transition. The right-sided midfielder, in England's case, it was Henderson, uh, it was Unahi when he came on last night. They've had a real impact um, in exploiting the right side. So who for Argentina, in what's been a fairly narrow midfield and attacking sort of formation, uh, who do you think might be the one to exploit those spaces out wide? Well, it's been Depaul in sort of central midfield. He's been that, um, you know, the, the player sort of doing Messi's running. But I think it could be possibly a game for Di Maria in particular as well. I know he's not a central midfielder, much more of a winger. Um, but obviously, defensively, he'd have the benefit of being a left footer. Um, so if Mbappe tries to come inside, that's on his sort of natural side. Um, but I also think if you look back to the 2021 Copa America final, um, he scored the winning goal off of a pass running in behind and can really exploit then um, to Hernandez in that sort of weak spot. It'd be nice for Di Maria to start a final as well because I think I'm right in saying that in 2014 when he was actually really good in that tournament and then got injured midway through, I think he pulled groin muscle or hamstring maybe. And I, I believe he wanted to play in the final but was basically um, advised not to because he was about to leave Real Madrid and basically was going to be an issue if he was, you know, injured and unable to do a medical, etc. So he kind of missed out on that final solely to make a move to Manchester United, which obviously he... He didn't enjoy it at all. I gather his wife didn't enjoy that either, judging by her comments about Manchester. So that was a bit of a waste. So as Liam says, he's, he was the match winner in the, the um, Copa America. Uh, he was man of the match in the Champions League final 2015, maybe one of the times Real Madrid won. He's a big game player. I've always really liked Di Maria. So yeah, I, I agree with Liam. I think it would be a, it'd be, would make sense if he started this game. So if I was to push you to play a game of Scaloni Roulette, what do you reckon? Di Maria in for Paredes? Yeah, probably one of the defensive midfielders. I mean, he went to a 4-4-2 uh, in that final against Brazil. Um, whether that would be sort of a sensible approach, obviously France tend to defend in a 4-4-2, um, so you might be sort of matching them up there. Um, whether they then sort of, I don't know, maybe go to build in sort of their asymmetric shape that they've done um, at this tournament with sort of pushing the, the left-back higher and wider and the right-back tucking round. Um, I'd imagine realistically that it's not going to be one set way it's going to be flicking between a few different ways in the game and um, so that part I think yeah is, is particularly interesting uh, and and what about Michael what do you perceive to be Argentina's vulnerability I guess to, to what France will offer the Mbappe question of course but more notably in the last two games uh, Griezmann uh, and trying to shackle him uh, any concerns for Argentina based on the way that they've played the way that they've defended that France might be a bad matchup for them I have been worried about their level of aggression. I think they've got away with a few quite bad tackles, actually. And I mean, there hasn't been a single straight red card in this tournament for uh, an outfielder. The only straight red card we've seen is um, is a Wales goalkeeper, Hennessy. Um, and even that was not given on the pitch. It was a, a VAR decision. So uh, surely that can't last. Argentina got to do something about that, I think. Um and yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd worry slightly about the fact they've relied a lot on their fullbacks for their attra- attacking drive and their attacking width. And obviously, if you fly forward and leave space against Mbappe and Dembele, who started the tournament very well, but I think has, has been a little bit quiet in the last couple of games, that could be an issue, maybe less of an issue if they do bring in Di Maria for that kind of running. So yeah, I'd just be worried. I mean, not necessarily just about getting into trouble with the referee, but just sticking too tight and getting spun and getting kind of played by Olivier Giroud and, you know, runners going in behind him. I just, Mm. something about the way that Argentina defend, I'm not, 
I'm never completely comfortable. I always think something's about to go wrong and it hasn't so far, in fairness. Interesting thing to look out for. I'll certainly be looking out for uh, little clipped balls over the top uh, and Alvarez running in behind. In terms of Deschamps' selection questions, uh, Liam in midfield, Rabio uh, missed the game against Morocco. Um, some sort of respiratory illness, uh, the, the air conditioning taking the blame there. Do you think Rabio slots back in if he's fit or will Fofana have given Deschamps a, a selection headache? It's, I wouldn't know how to pick really between them, if I'm honest. I think Rory's been interesting because he's shown a more attacking side to his game this tournament, which I think I hadn't seen from before, particularly not in a France share. And I don't know what the stat was, but it was something like he's scored two or three uh, and had scored that many in his past 30 sort of France caps. So he, he's not really... Um, he's sort of gone the opposite way to Griezmann, who's become more defensive, you know, player sort of um, tweaking their roles. But I quite enjoyed the balance um, against Morocco. Uh, if I'm honest, in midfield, I thought Fofana offered a lot of legs. I thought they only really looked a little bit stretched um, when the injuries came about and Morocco put on an extra midfielder and then um, there wasn't through them playing badly. They were just overloaded and needed um, sort of extra numbers in there to, to mark players and stuff. Um, so I, I would see no reason um, not going to go for the old score. If it's not broke, don't fix it. But I think that the balance is actually quite good. And Michael... Upper Meccano got air conned as well uh, and missed the semi-final. Konate came in. Um, what do you think Deschamps will decide to do should Upper Meccano be fit? I thought Upper Meccano was probably their worst player against England. I think Konate was possibly their best player against Morocco. Well, that, that explains that then. I mean, it, you talked about um, the potential for, for Giroud to be you know, for, for Argentina defenders to be getting too tight to Giroud and them getting turned. And I just had this image of, of firstly, Upper Meccano getting turned at least twice by Harry Kane in a way that did not look very elite centre-back defending. Uh, I then had the image of Gvardiol, who did a pretty good job to start with against Messi, but couldn't deal with the, the agility, essentially, getting turned. Uh, and it strikes me that Messi was up a sided centre-back there for, for that moment. Uh, and therefore, this left-sided centre-back selection for Deschamps might be absolutely uh, crucial. Canate uh, probably doing enough to start. Um, anything else, Liam, that's important to preview before the match starts? This is your chance to basically say something that's as good as your Australia 1-0 <laughs> uh, uh, with, with a headed goal from Leckie, was it? Uh, Mitchell Duke from Duke. Uh, I might, I might uh, print this out and frame it uh, in my room. This is... um, I'm not sure I'll ever come up with something good, that good again. But it's one thing to perform in the group stage. It, <laughs> this is this is the big stage. Uh, what do you think is worth flagging here? Well, I think just one nice thing is that there's going to be a good level of legacy for one of these teams here. Either Argentina are going to come out of it having won a Copa America uh, and then winning a World Cup. I'm, I'm sure Michael will be able to tell me the last South American team to do the world title and the continental title like that. Um, obviously, Spain come to mind for the European side. And on the other side of that, it will be France, obviously, if they go back to back, which will be um, a first team in, a, in an awful long time. I don't have the specific stat, but not many have managed that. Um, but I think the first half could be really interesting. The two best first half teams at the tournament... Um, They've both scored five in the first half. Argentina are yet to concede a first half goal. France have only let in one. Uh, Argentina have been ahead in four of their six games so far at half time. France are ahead in five. So, you know, that, that really could be um, where the game's decided. Interesting. Uh, Michael, any instinct as to which way it'll go? No, I'm not sure there'll be many goals. I can see it being 1 0 either way. Um, I must admit, I, I, I would like Argentina to win it. I think Messi winning it would be a fantastic story. And. There's just something about this France team. I just don't think of them as back-to-back World Cup winners. I know they're a good side, but they're not. I mean, you know, it's only been done twice, has it? Brazil 
the great Brazil side and then Italy in the 30s. Um, so you've got a bit of a real all-time great side to be able to retain the World Cup. And I just don't quite see France as being on that level, which is maybe slightly harsh. But um, yeah, I think it'd be a fantastic story if, uh, if Argentina won it. I'm getting strong Real Madrid shouldn't have won three Champions League titles <laughs> in a row vibes from you there. Yeah, I apologise to Rafael Varane. I, I, I haven't got it in for you at all. <laughs> well, the stage is set. Uh, France and Argentina, Deschamps and Scaloni, Messi and Mbappe. Uh, Sunday afternoon, so many stories to savour. Uh, and of course, as you know by now, The Athletic has you covered from every single angle. And it's just £2 or $2 a month for the first 12 months if you sign up today at theathletic.com forward slash tactics. And we will be back to break it all down early next week and conclude our World Cup focus. Uh, It's been such a pleasure uh, to chat through the tournament with you, the listener, but also with Michael, Liam, Ahmed uh, and Mark as well. Thanks to Michael and Liam for their insight today. And, And thanks to you for listening, for being with us throughout and for your support as always. Join us next time on the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast World Cup Final Recap. The Athletic.